Today's episode of 990 Talk brought to you as always by Michael Knopf from Draper and Kramer Mortgage Corp. Don't mess up the number this time. I was going to say, I wasn't <laughs> sure if I should save it for the where we were right, where we were wrong, but last week <laughs> when I confidently uh, said the phone number, it was wrong. So I'm actually going to go back to the basics and I'm going to read it. So anyway, if you would like a mortgage and you want the best in the business, you got to call Michael Knopf at 847-239-7804. 847-239-7804. Let's do it. Hey. Hey, Mom. What's up? Really, what I really want to know is how supportive Malka is of this podcast venture. Believe it or not, you're going to be really excited about this. But uh, we are probably uh... not. If you and I are calling me about something. Okay. <laughs> well, that went well. <laughs> I think she hung up. <laughs> Are you gonna listen to it? Well, I don't know. I so I don't listen to things that really relate to my life. <laughs> wow, that that hurts. Oh, that that's that is great. Right in the gut. <clears throat> I mean, you guys have nothing better to do with your time. I figured it's about time you do something. Now you're obviously very bored because you have no idea if it was gonna actually be happening. <laughs> We're calling it 990 yeah. Talk. A lot of people out there think that those who can't make profit work in nonprofit. And that may or may not be true. You know, we're just like two dudes in, in a world that most people are focused on chasing every dollar. We kind of just want to show people that there's a niche for guys like us. In the meantime, we're out to at least talk about what it means to work in nonprofit. You know, just like changing the world is more important. So. Do me and you can do you. I just want to say we're pointing at each other. I who know, should, they don't, yeah. who we, should start talking first? Just to explain to listeners, we have these different like hand signals that we use because we're not on, we're not being recorded. There's no visual Visually, recording. Yeah, although there, um, sh- there should be, by the way. And we just went through like a, a violent disagreement about who it was, like, it was, like a, it was like a, It was like a finger gun fight. Yeah, if I could have reached, I would have smashed you across the face. That would have been picked up by the audio, though. I got a phone call yesterday from an organization, remain nameless, doesn't make a difference, um, asking me for a donation mm-hmm. on the phone. Now, I want to um, I want to talk about something, I think, for a minute here. And then, um, so it goes like this. So they call, I'm just going to use numbers. They said, you know, we'd really like you to consider a gift of $100. And I said, I, I actually didn't, I don't even know the organization. I basically said, nah, I really, unfortunately, I'm not in the position to do that. Oh, okay, but maybe you'd consider, you know, $72. And this went on. And Emma, this went is on this for an a organization while. that I've have a, no, have a personal not. battle it with. It is not. It is not. It's a different organization. I know. I thought about that. We we don't have to talk about that. That's a different. We're not, we're not talking about. It that. sounds like they're tactics. I know. We're not. It's I, a, and by the way, I should have discussed that with the guest. One that second. was a so then, opportunity. So then it, oh, yes. <laughs> so then it keeps going, and seventy-two becomes fifty, becomes thirty-six, becomes eighteen. I literally, I think, okay, at ten, I really just wanted to hang up on the person because I, I the, at, at that point, the, the, it was going to be zero. They were not going. I was not going to make a commitment. I was not going to take a bill over the phone. I don't even want your information. I was done. But I had this like feeling of guilt. Now, maybe it's because I also am involved in fundraising that I felt bad saying no. But it's like, at what point like, am I allowed to hang up? Like, I was really polite. I, I really politely said, I'm so sorry. I really can't. Oh, but, and like, am I allowed to just be like, okay, I have to hang up on you. This phone call is taking too long. Does anyone else share that sentiment? And there's probably people out there that like never say no to giving. Maybe I'm a bad guy. I don't even know. I feel like they're operating based on the percentages and that's why they keep doing it. But I feel like, again, if you're the solicitor and I don't do this, I don't make this type of phone calls and neither do you. Like you got to read the person. You got to read the person. That's it. Right. Anyway, so that was, that's what you wanted to talk about. I well, was actually I not had, sure how to start to go, the podcast. Okay, that's fine. Yeah. Um, I wasn't sure if I should first talk about um, my attempted FaceTime last night, which was hijacked. You, okay. I mean... But I feel like we're not allowed to talk about that. No, I don't. There's no reason. I feel like I'll get in trouble. You Facetime me at a moment that I was um, helping in the kitchen, and it was quality time with my spouse. And you never called me back, though. She said Ari's going to call you back, and but I, you didn't do it. She said it. I she <laughs> I didn't make a commitment. It was a little passive aggressive, though. Whatever. I don't think so. I thought it was very sweet, actually. And it's not fair that your wife Malka does not listen to the show, and my wife does. So now she's going to hear this. Yeah. And then the other way I was going to take it was we could discuss, you know, what we've been focused on the last uh, I was 48 get hours. There. I was going to get there. And that is buying a truck I was for, get there. for us, for camp. That's really what it is inherently. 
All right. My point was was that we have this thing, and I and um, anyone who works in customer service understands this concept. Like, there's only so many times you can like counter, you know. So like when you're selling camp over the phone, we don't really sell it. I mean, we do, and we have you know. So like if a parent says, "Well, I can't do it because X," like how many times are you gonna say, "But maybe you should consider this." Well, I also can't do it because this. Oh well, maybe you should consider. Like if you do that three or four times, you just you're cheapening the product. Um, I cannot stand talking to car salesmen. I just, it is a, it is, um, it, it gives me, all right. So we're on the market for a new vehicle. Um, and I've been spending some time going in and out of dealerships. I want to get a used one. It's just the, it's a, it's a, is it a grind? Like, what is it? It is. It's a grind. Mentally, no, it's, it's a toll. So, okay, good. It's so emotionally taxing to have the conversation, to sit there across from a guy who's got a computer screen that's facing him playing around well, with your personal keys info. and numbers. Yeah. And you have, n- I just feel like you have no leverage. I mean, used cars are definitely a little bit worse. Do you think that's, um? do you think that is worse? You, do you think the experience is worse for used cars or, 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 or versus new cars? What do you think? Well, I think there's a lot more of an unknown in used cars. You don't know, you can't, know the value of the car as much and you can't compare it as easily. In other words, a new car is the same in every dealership that they're selling it. So, you know, a tactic, for example, for getting a good price on a new car is just to bounce around from different dealerships and see who gives you the best offer. You can't do that with a used car because nope. every used car it's is different. slightly different. different product, you yeah. know, I saw the same one that had a hole in the back seat. Like, okay, you know how, it's just it's just different. Okay. So, so anyway, on that note, I think we should really dive into the board of directors let's of, I guess, car buying. Yeah, I just I have a pit in my stomach just thinking about it. Okay, so I'm just gonna go for it. So I'm just gonna I'm just gonna easy segue into number one for me, and that is, the time it takes. Like you may think like you're gonna spend the time on the phone, and you're gonna get there and it's gonna be faster. It will never be faster. You're trapped. It's actually a tactic that they do that like they try to wear you out in order that you're just gonna be like screw it. I'll just do whatever you want me to do. It's a massive time commitment and it's there are, it's not easy at all to circumvent that. It's very, very difficult. So that's, you know, it's just a grind. It's a massive, massive time investment. And by the way, even when you're sure, like let's say it's a new car and like you've actually pre-negotiated the price and like you just want to get there and sign the documents that itself takes two hours. Everything takes time. Yeah. So it's just, yeah, that's similar. Okay. Yeah. It's rough. Okay. That's number one. My uh, number two for me, the worst thing about uh, car buying is when you hear the words, um, where do you want your monthly payment to be? I want my monthly payment to be zero. It's a ridiculous question. I want my number to be zero. Get me as close to zero as possible. That's it. Right. That's your job. Okay. So for me, that, you know, that's, that's definitely number two. So number one, I'm going to jump right into the tactics. You mentioned the time that it takes. So I remember as a kid once, I, like, I went into my father's office, and he, across from his desk, had two chairs, and they were very uncomfortable, and they were low. Does he still have them? No. He's changed his philosophy, I think. But I oh, that was, like, was that, it was like a psychological thing that he I had? I don't think it was psychological. I think, honestly, he just found the chairs. But he did tell me in that moment, not that he was imploring this, uh, this tactic, but like, there's a thing about when you come to visit, you know, the visiting chairs in any given office. Um, you don't really want people sticking around, whatever. I don't know. There's like, there's, there's, there's things like that. So I feel like all I was going to say maybe they're low. So like for me, like I would if I yeah, had the a fancy person office, behind the desk is sitting. I would feel very up. tall. Yeah. yeah. Again, my father's not like that. It just happened to be he was he was sharing that that information with me. So again, not that he uses those tactics, um, but he just explained to me that there are like a lot of there's psychology around the way you, you use furniture. I feel like all of those types of things are being used by car dealers. Like oh, all yeah. of it. You know what I mean? Like you walk just everything from like walking in the front door to like it's just I don't know. Like it just doesn't feel right. It just doesn't feel right. And the waiting game is a huge one. So what is your number one exactly? My no. my number one is I was gonna say are these these sort of tactics, the tactics. that are used the tactics. Yeah, waiting is an example of it because they're like, does it really take so long for you to put in my information? Like, what's going on? Um, and then you you're just I I just it's that it's the tactics. The second one is the feeling of helplessness. Like I feel like unless you've sat on the other side of the desk, like unless you know how selling a car works. You have no, you have very little, little to no leverage. 
You know what I mean? And they're going to take you for a ride. And the, yeah, like the, the, you can be as educated of a consumer as possible. You don't really know. There's a, just that, that feeling of unknown, that loss of leverage, that helplessness that is, is rough to deal with. That's actually a good segue into my number three. Great. And that is, I guess, um, like the add-ons they try to sell you. Mm. Like, you know, like the sideboards. You're not even like, talking about like the fine print of like, oh, no. there's going to be some extra fees. No, I'm talking about, I'm talking about the items. Yeah. Like, don't tell me that, oh, you can't come down. That, that, as I say, okay, can you come down a thousand dollars? And they'll be like, no, we can't. You get all these cool things like a full tank of gas, like a full tank of gas. They saw you there. Like if you could, if you read the, like the sticker, sometimes yeah. it will say that as included. Mm-hmm. Like that's it's annoying. So, that's so nice of them. Yeah, like very, very courteous of you. Like, okay, honestly, like I'm more than happy for you to take down $1,000 and I'll go fill it up at, at the next place for $30, $30 right. you know? Yeah. But, you know, whether Hopefully it's Hopefully only $30. Probably. The only thing I will say is that um, the all-weather mats, if they actually throw that in, like, that's actually not bad. <laughs> like, I have all-weather mats, they're pretty sick. So you're saying some perks are good. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't pay more money for them, but, like, like if, if I have the leverage to, like, get it thrown in, I'm doing that. Because, especially now when, like, in Chicago, there's a lot of snow. You're basically just like walking around on salt at all times. The all-weather mats are nice. It's a nice touch. Right. It's a nice touch. So that's number three for me. And number four for me is when they don't have the answers. Like, a lot of times, like, there'll be, a, like, a, a salesperson that's new on the job. And, like, if you actually are an educated consumer, like, it's possible you'll know more than them. And that's ridiculous. Like, when you're, like, telling them more about, you know, the, the least structured than, than they added themselves know and then they have to go back to the yeah, manager. I, like, I guess you can get lucky. No, it happens a lot. Oh, so I have not had that experience many times. Like the, the, getting the inexperienced salesperson. Yeah, I never had that. It's like when I, whatever. I mean, I, I don't want to get, I don't want to get into flex territory here, but like, this is not even a flex. It's like, okay, everyone knows I have this thing that I like can't, you can't be, be in satisfied. I, I I feel like I'm trying I mean, to get out of my lease every the same 90 way, months. The same way you have trouble. The sorry. same way you have trouble sitting in a chair for an extended period of time. You have trouble owning the same car for. Yeah, time. I just like 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 have this like weird thing where I feel like I want to get a lease. It's not a lease. flex. You, no, you it's it's, it's actually a problem that I have. But anyway, so like yeah. like like it bothers me. Like I'm like talking to a dealer and like I know more about the lease structure than they do. And like you want to talk about the four square tactics right now? No, or? no, this that's no because this is not like a, a this is not a car buying podcast. I'm just saying, but like. Like, I'll be like, okay, I want to discuss the lease quote. And they'll be like, well, we need you here. I'll be like, I know exactly what you need. I will give it to you right now. Don't tell me, oh, I need you here. Like, this is really, it's not rocket science. Like, I know exactly right. what you need. This is what you need. This is what I want. Please provide it for me. Mm. And if not, I'll call the next guy. I don't care. But, um, so the uneducated uh, salesperson is really, it's annoying. Anyway, go ahead. Three, four. So my three, four um, are like this. Um I guess it's the, the, the customer service of it all. Like, I, I don't even know if this is number three. It's just like, I feel like if you were that one guy who just like really made the experience more, I don't know what it would be. Like, I'm not even sure what I'd add, like transparent maybe, if there's more transparency. Maybe turn your screen around and show me what it is you're doing right. and what you're looking at. Shout, like, shout out to CarMax. Yeah, shout out to CarMax. Show me the numbers. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like the one guy who's going to do that is going to have a great, great customer loyalty. Well, this is why leasing companies I mean, are so successful. I, I they clear. take out the work for you. I know. I want to be clear. There are some great leasing agents out there, and there's too many for us to choose, and we're not. No, none of them are paying us right now, so we're not plugging any of them. But if you want to pay us, we're no, happy no. to okay, yeah. take your spot. I'm just saying that like um, that, that transparency and that honesty, that guy would get my business, and I would come back year after year after year. Or not year after year, whatever, lease after lease. Number four for me is what I like to call the post-buy feel. Which is like no ma- almost no matter what happens, you don't walk away feeling like you won. No. So like, the whole experience culminates with this like, I you think like I might have just been taken for a ride. Yeah. And they you- should they should really incorporate that into like their into their sales. Like they should make you feel better about yourself when yes. you leave. Yes. Why is there no world in where the guy who's selling the car gains and and the and the person walking away feels like okay I got. You know, I can feel good about this. Instead, it's like, I got a really nice car that I probably overpaid for. So I just, I find it so fascinating. I mean, I guess it's just a necessity of life. So the demand will always be there. But like, why is this purchasing experience so um, painful? And the conclusion of which, which is like not even, you know, yeah, it just feels weird. So 
whatever. Hopefully it'll be over. And all the more so when you haven't even finished the the, the 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 whole thing yet. We haven't gotten the car yet. Yeah. So we're just in this rut. Yes. So hopefully we get out of it soon. <laughs> anyway, we climb out of this depression. Yeah. Moving on. Okay. So very interesting interview today with uh, David Bashevkin. Really excited for this one. Who is a man of many things and titles, hats. but uh, but many many, um, hats. many, many hats. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But um, ultimately, you know, he works in our industry, and I think I think we're going to talk about staying power, personalities, lifestyle, and um, it's it it was really fun. So uh, here we go. All right, we welcome to the show today David Bashevkin. Uh, many of you know him as David Bashevkin, Director of Education at NCSY. He's the founder of his own podcast, 1840 Podcast, and a professor at Yeshiva University. David, thank you so much for coming on the show. What an absolute joy. You guys have great voices for uh, podcasts, both of you. Cerulli has a better voice than you do, but really? uh, you guys really have great voices. I'm surprised you say that because Ari's got it a little deeper and I talk fast. So people say that. You sound like a sports radio host to me, and I love it. Yeah. All right. That's good. Listen, I, I'm, I, is that the biggest comment I've ever got in my life? It might be. You can't see, uh, maybe you can see David. He's blushing like seriously. (laughs) Can I just say, talk about pumping tires. That's people complain that that the problem with this podcast is that I speak too fast to listen on one and a half speed and Ari talks too slow to listen on, (laughs) on one. So, well, I guess if they don't like the content, at least maybe they'll stick around for the voice. Yeah. Um, David, you're just so better. I'm really flattered, by the way. I know you are. You have this massive smile. It's great. I'm going to have to listen to this forever now. You're going to be talking about this. Maybe I'll just quit. David's just upset because I was like uh, eight or nine years ago. Remember, I, I jammed your finger in a basketball game, and then you were out in Shulman's backyard. Mm-hmm. That's right. We can talk about it. Oh, wow. That, yeah. That's a long time ago. Yes, yeah. I do remember that. Yeah, you cried. All right, let's move on. So... <laughs> David, thanks so much for coming on the show. We like to usually start by asking whoever it is we're interviewing to give a little bit of a history and a background about, you know, where you're from, kind of how you got into what it is that you do and, uh, and any big takeaways. Um, I grew up in Long Island, what's known as the five towns, which I think gets a brief mention in the movie Goodfellas. If you pay close attention and I, um, studied in, uh, Baltimore um, I'm, I'm still almost at the, at the finish line of my PhD at the new school, which is not a new school. Um, it's called the new school uh, in public policy, studying crisis management. And I am the director of education for NCSY. I probably got into nonprofit work uh, because of a mixture of my own just talents and passions and what I was interested in multiplied by my father is in the equivalent of nonprofit work just for a very big profit, uh, which is that he's an oncologist, a very caring and sensitive oncologist. And I grew up in a home where part of the professional personality of the people I was surrounded by were people who were helpers, people who were caring, people who were sharing with empathy and graciousness. And I, I attribute a great deal of my upbringing, both my mother and father, um, to my interest in kind of sharing something of, of graciousness with the world. Uh, what age was it, do you think, that you decided you wanted to go into community work? The great question. I've never, I've never, um, my self image is not, I want to go into community work. I think that what brought me to nonprofit work was actually a deep passion and enjoyment for education and sharing ideas, uh, a love of education, a love of content and communication uh, and sharing those ideas. Um, and that goes back as far as I can remember, meaning I was writing short stories in third grade, but like long ones. They were terrible because I would switch tenses in the middle of the story. I would start off in third person, then I would switch to second person, then jump to first person. I think you should publish those. I was going to say, those are probably those are probably due for a good publishing right now. They're they're unexpectedly gory. They're like very violent for a third grader. So like... So, the, so, so we, have to de- we have to deep dive into the psychology. I would love to see one of them. So, but but I loved, I loved public speaking. I loved, loved writing. And I was looking for, like, where can I share ideas? And the two area, I mean... It was like, like a host of areas. Like I always thought of law because I'm Jewish and just like at a certain point, you're like, I guess I should take the LSATs. It's my birthright. 
Uh, I did take the LSAT. I almost <laughs> went to law school. Um, but I was interested in something more than that. I didn't want to sit behind a desk. I hate corporate culture, which I've realized exists in the nonprofit world in spades. Um, and what I am interested in and what I focus on every day is sharing um, impactful, inspiring, humorous, enjoyable ideas. I am ideas driven in what I do. And I look at my my like the universe, the professional universe that I'm a part of is not exclusively nonprofit. I love the investing world because I think, I forgot who it is who runs ETF.com, but he had an interview with Barry Ritholtz on Masters of Business. You can look up who runs it. And he, he said himself, at my core, I'm an educator. I want to share ideas with people. And that resonated a great deal. I look at journalists. I look at comedians. I look at other educators. That, that's the world that I love to be a part of, which makes every day, you know, to quote Jeff Bezos quoting uh, Warren Buffett, I, I tap dance to work every day, especially now that I work in my uh, office in my house. Right. That's you, tap, you tap dance in socks, basically. I'm not even wearing socks you today. Slide, you slide, you slide, you slide down. Tom Cruise. Slides. Um, what kind of student were you that you wanted to go into education? And in any way, was that related to that, that trajectory? Uh, that's an excellent question. I don't think I've been asked that. I, I was an excellent student, but I suffered from debilitating anxiety, which I still suffer from today, which made math, which I happen to be not gifted at, but good at, um, it made math a terror for me in high school, where I convinced myself that I was incapable of doing this. I remember most, of it, 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 I grew up in New York, so we take the regents. Most, oh, yeah. kids, most kids take the regents in eighth grade. And I, my which, anxiety, which one? Which one? Math, math A? Was it math one or math A? Math, well, I forgot what it's called. It's like, I, I know what it was. When they introduced negative numbers to me, I remember trip out. I understood it, but my my heart would beat so fast that I couldn't comprehend the information. So I was like a, and even like on my GREs, SATs, I would get near perfect scores in English and I would need not like the math tutoring. I would need like therapy to like be able to confront those problems. And now I spend a, a decent amount of my time around numbers in my own personal finance. And I think it's just when, it, when there's no test at the end of it, uh, you know, it doesn't make me nervous anymore. And I've always been interested in the philosophy of math. So I was a, I was a good student, a very good student. I just want to shout out my, uh, my 11th grade math tutor. She literally got me through math B. It was a miracle. I was probably getting 20s and she got me and I passed that region somehow. Meaning, I, uh, let me give you an anecdote. When I, again, I, this is going to sound like a psycho, not even a humble brag, just a brag. But I'm going to brag anyways. Go for when it. I took my AP English exam in 12th grade and they had a reading comprehension section, I had already read the book that the reading comprehension passage had come off of. So, like, I was I was reading a lot at a young age. I'm going to give the reverse, uh, the reverse brag. <laughs> so I went to two high schools, so... In the first high school I went to, so there was no, they, there was full on college credits in 12th grade. So they finished all the regions through 11th grade. Um, and in 12th grade, I went to a different school and the 12th and the English region was the final. And I did worse on the region in 12th grade than I did in 11th grade. I'm not sure. Very impressive. We should have paired up. I'm yeah. not sharing any student anecdotes. Yeah, we're, not, we're gonna at all. Moving on. Uh, moving on. I'm, I'm not talking about my education. Please. Anyway, so it seems like you do a lot of things, but like, how do you want? Like, what, what's like, what, in your mind? Like, what's your identity? How when people think of? Ooh, that's a good question. Dave Bashev, what do you want to come to mind? That's an awesome question. I don't want any organization or title to come to mind. I don't care for organizational affiliations. I have great gratitude to the organizations I'm a part of. But I am not the organizations I work for. I am not the titles that I hold. I am the ideas that I have brought into the world. And I think there are two categories of ideas, both of which are related if you look at them closer. I've written a book and many essays on how people, uh, both in religious and non-religious communities, cope with failure. So the notion of failure is something that has animated my career. And the second is humor and comedy. And I love both of them because both of them explore dissonance in expectations. Uh, failure is when you know you wanted it to turn out one way and it turned out another way. And humor is when you look at that gap between how you thought it was going to turn out and how it actually turned out. 
and you bridge that gap with something enjoyable and funny and humorous. Can I just say, I think that the cat video yesterday was probably, was, I think it actually was the funniest video I've seen in my life. That was a, you, you got to throw Brilliant. it up for your listeners, but there were that. I think zoom. it was the funniest video I've seen in my life. I cannot think of a video that is funnier. I just can't. It had everything. I love the cat. I love all cat videos, but that was especially enjoyable. Anyway, but I think David brings up a good, a good point. I like, like that you went from what is your core identity to, to shifting. I love that cat video. Was, uh, I'm still thinking about it. I, th you know, I, I listen. I, I'm sitting there in bed last night, laughing out loud at the thought of it. My wife's like, "What's wrong with you?" I'm like, "I'm sorry. It's just so funny. The whole thing is hilarious." Anyway, but getting back to identity, so you're it's it's a funny thing because you're talking about how you personally you specifically do not want an identity with the organizations you work with. And for us, it's something that we struggle with, at least for me personally. Like, I think it will make me more productive in my job if I did a better job at identifying with the organization instead of just being well, focused on my personal brand. I couldn't disagree more. A question I often ask people, you need, the more you have an identity, a professional identity, a, a mission outside of your organization, the more valuable I think you become to the organization. Because I think what specifically in the nonprofit world where the track and the career trajectory is so much murkier, so you could end up like ossifying, like Han Solo, like you become like, you become a part of the wall. Like if you remember that scene where Han Solo was kind of like frozen in carbonite, there's so many people in nonprofits and in for-profits, but I've seen it a lot in nonprofits. You just become a part of the furniture. You don't have an identity outside. And the question I always ask people who work in my nonprofit or any nonprofit, if this organization shut down tomorrow, what are you doing? Are you yeah. next job? And the reason why I think it's an important question is not because I'm rooting, God forbid, for my organization to shut down. That would be terrible, terrible. But what I am trying to provoke people to think about is what 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 do you do? What what is your identity outside of this? Because a lot of people say, "Oh, I don't know. Maybe I would be a fundraiser for another organization, or maybe I would be, maybe I would look to a school and become an educator. Maybe I would go back into the for-profit world and try to get in there." But it tells you a lot about somebody's ambitions and also their present um, their present capacity. What are you good at? I think a lot of people, when it comes to the nonprofit world, they get it gets muddled of like what what do you want to contribute? I think in the in the for profit world, because of the market of the market conditions and the market factors, you have to specialize. You have to have a very specific focus, and you become the expert in that focus, and then you learn how to scale that that focus, manage others to build that expertise. It drives you to have an expertise. In the nonprofit world, I find that the, the market factors actually, because you're so strapped for cash, everyone's a generalist. What do you do? Well, I do a little bit of marketing. I do a lot of some public speaking. I make the flyers. Set up, uh, you know, I, I cook meals at the fundraisers. I'm setting the fork and knives. I'm also the waiter. I'm also the MC. And you're just like, okay, so like, but what do you like do? Like, what do you want to do? I think people get lost in that world and it's important to have an identity that's independent from the organization you work for. It makes you more valuable. I think this is a different point than what you were saying because your, your issue, which we may or may not need to edit is it out. An issue? Is this like no, a dirty laundry what, session? No, no. What you mentioned, which we may or may not need to edit out of the interview was just that you have trouble sort of utilizing that platform and, and bringing it back to the organization. What David's saying is that, and this is an incredible point, is that you know every individual has to see themselves as an individual. And the more they grow as an individual, so their asset value goes up and they become something more than furniture. I mean, that's kind of, you know, the podcast is a perfect example. This allows us an avenue to communicate, to, to create, you know, a goal and a mission that we have um, and to kind of share that with the world. And that helps bring recognition to us. And at the same time, that, is a, that becomes a value to the organization that we work for. Right. But, but the, the, the irony is, the, but the one job in nonprofits that you literally could take anywhere is fundraising. If you could raise money, you, you, that you, have, a, you have a plan B. Right. But the point is, and David, you can you can speak to this if you'd like, is that the fundraiser, while they build up their platform, they have a responsibility to always be representing and bringing the best value that they can to the organization that they work for. That really I also think that the is best their job. I think the best fundraisers are drawn to an idea and they're drawn to specific missions. 
again, I, I'm not a great fundraiser. I'm an okay fundraiser. Um, but what I have found is that the kind of people that people want to spend time with, the kind of people that people want to hear pitches from are people who are interesting. They have something that animates them beyond getting the check, beyond getting the dollar amount across the table. And part of becoming an interesting, engaging human being that people want to give money to and spend time with and hear their pitches for is that you're more than asking for money. You're more than that. And, and you have to be more than that. Um, or the only thing people are going to see from you is, oh, okay, what are you, it's not even going to matter to them. Okay, what are you, you're going to end up being reduced. And this is how so much burnout comes from this. You know, you're not, you, you call up somebody, send an email. Oh, okay, what are you raising money for this time? What do you, what do you want? Okay, okay, I'll help you. I'll help you. I'll, I'll help you salary. Help you pay rent. Okay, I'll give you the money. Don't worry about it. And that, that obnoxiousness, which I'm not, I'm not abusing, uh, but we sometimes lean into that obnoxiousness because we don't become anything more than the envelope that we're trying to get at the end of the conversation. If we are more than that envelope, then that conversation is going to go much more differently. People are going to want to spend time with us. People, people are excited to pick up our phone calls. I mean, once we're talking about personalities, you mentioned burnout. I, I am curious to hear from you because you've been involved with um, several organizations, you know, a lot of other professionals in non-for-profit work, you know, like what in your mind do you see as those like key sort of character traits or personality traits, uh, that you find in those that are most successful and that have that lasting power because burnout is, I mean, this is probably a separate conversation, which we can talk a little bit about, you know, there are, there, there definitely feels and seems to be more of a, a turnaround and more burnout in the non-for-profit sector than, than in the for-profit. So I'm curious to hear from you kind of what, what, what are those key elements that you see in the successful ones? I, I love that question. And I think burnout, burnout is, again, it's a real product of your identity and, and, and very much the community that you live in and how people speak to you. Um, I've mentioned before, I hate when people ask me, do you still work? For oh yeah, we've we've, we we've discussed this. Are you still are you still a doctor? Like, what do you mean? Yeah, so that that's my bit. I tweeted that a while ago. Nobody's ever asked my father, "Are you still an oncologist?" But I get the still. It bothers me much less because I built up an independent confidence of who I am and what I'm contributing. Yeah, now they wouldn't what even know what to ask. They wouldn't even know what to ask you. They'd be like, "Are you still? Are you still a colonist? Contributing ideas?" And right. I would say, "Yeah, yes, I am. I am still." Still contributing ideas in, in many different places, and it's a joy. But I think burnout, the language that I use to talk about burnout very often, and I've gotten a little bit in trouble for this language because I know so many people actually struggle with housing. So I want to be careful in the way that I set up this analogy. But I think that people have a relationship to their professional identity and their professional responsibilities. There are some people who look at their professional role as paying rent. And there are some people who look at their professional role as paying a mortgage. You can pay rent and rent out a gorgeous mansion for 10 years. That's an incredible place to live. Uh, it's gorgeous. People love it. It's got a balcony. It's got swimming pools. And you can love it. Or you could own and you can buy and pay a mortgage for 10 years for a dilapidated, um, a dilapidated apartment. The distinction isn't how glamorous uh, what you are paying rent or mortgage to. The distinction is at the end of 10 years, at the end of 10 years, whether you are paying rent to a mansion or mortgage to an apartment, how much equity do you own in that property? And you could pay rent for 10 years and you won't own a nickel of that mansion. You, it just was a place to live for 10 years. It was a roof over your head. Or you could pay rent for 10 years, not in a glamorous mansion. And after 10 years, you now own, depending on the mortgage structure, a very nice percentage of that property. To use that as an analogy and a lens to talk about our professional lives. There are people who look at their jobs as paying rent. It's a place where I get a check. It was a nice place. Sometimes it's a good check. Sometimes it's a bad check. But I pay rent. I am looking, I'm just looking to get through the, these years of my life. I'm looking to get through that nine to five. I'm not looking to develop my identity. I'm not looking to build myself as a person. And these are people who are always looking for the least amount of contribution, the least amount of upkeep. When you pay rent, you're, you don't put money into that house. You don't put money, you don't, you don't fix up the kitchen when you're paying rent. Why would you put money into a place that you don't even own? I think people approach their professional lives like that. I, I'm not even being critical. 
I think some people rightfully approach their professional lives like that. But that very often leads to burnout because you don't own any more of that property. When you look at your job as a way and a method for building equity in your professional life and your professional identity, and as a, met, as a lens to invest in yourself, I think burnout becomes a lot less likely. I mean, do you have any insight into into why you think it would? Because it's a great analogy. I've actually said similarly, um, but not on the air. So we'll see if we keep this. That you know, for a lot of people, their job is like a public bathroom. You know, you get in, you do your thing, you get out, and you're not there. There isn't that investment. There isn't that lasting power. There's no. They don't feel that attachment because no one would feel an attachment or want to spend time any extra time in a public bathroom. But the, you know. The, the question is really just why. Why are there people that are, that are like that? The analogy of renting an apartment, uh, sorry, renting a mansion versus um, paying a mortgage on an apartment seems so sound um, that how would anyone argue with it? So what is it? is it? Is it just a lack of motivation? Is it a lack of self-esteem? Is it a lack of vision? Uh, maybe Purpose. it's just laziness. I, 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 but to no, me, no, I, I really no, I wonder want, why. I want to dispel that notion. I think there are two types of people who pay rent. There's one type of person, and it's a very decent, wonderful person who has not bought into the American idea that the number one most important question is, what do I do? They, they have not bought into that idea. And, and credit to them and kudos to them. Because a lot of those people are paying rent in their professional lives, but they're paying deep mortgages in their family lives, in their perhaps spiritual, religious lives. They have other places where they're paying a mortgage. We don't all have the capacity and the personal resources. I don't mean money, but the, the personal capacity to pay mortgage in every category of our lives. We try to, but if you're paying a deep mortgage in your professional life, odds are uh, your family life or some other area of your life, maybe your hobbies, it's taking a hit. It's taking a hit. You're paying rent with your hobbies. You wanted to be an artist. You don't have the luxury of doing that anymore. And that's okay. It's the analogy is not meant as a criticism. The analogy is meant as a lens to understand. It's not a it's not a criticism of you rent a mansion. I have no problem with somebody's doing that. They don't want to own uh, and have the responsibility of being a homeowner. And I think that that's fine. I want to avoid very deliberately so saying that it's laziness. Is it sometimes laziness? Sure, of course. But I, I don't I don't think that it's it's laziness any more than somebody who has a like I grew up in a home where my father had crazy work obligations. I don't think you know. I might describe was he paying rent to his family maybe for a couple of years, but it wasn't out of laziness or lack of love for us. It was he was unable. It's so busy to have that deep. You know, he wasn't taking me to baseball games on Sunday. Right. And that's yeah. that's the trade off. I think everybody has a trade off of rent or mortgage in every aspect of their life, including their professional life. And you need to find out what makes the most sense to you. Burnout usually occurs when somebody who wants a mortgage mentality can't get out of the rut of paying rent in one aspect of their life. That's why people lose jobs. That's why people get divorced. They don't want to pay mortgage to their family. They don't want that deep investment, and their family does. This is not going to work. They don't want to pay a mortgage to their job. They don't want to be that deeply invested. They just want a rent job. Not a good fit. It's gonna either you're either gonna get fired or burnt out. Right. I mean that answers the question. It really comes down more to the way you're saying it now is about like almost the priorities. You know, everyone's got different you know priorities and different places that they want to be investing themselves. Yeah, that makes sense. So no, no, I kind of want to transition into discussing maybe like the social pressures of 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 you know not to keep you know being the analogy dead, but if, you know if someone's gonna be willing to, uh, I guess pay a mortgage in their professional life in the non for profit world, there's gonna be sacrifices elsewhere, especially financially. Potentially, um, pay the actual mortgage. Yeah, I mean, I mean, again, I don't want to keep killing the analogy here, but I feel like that's like a big thing for people, you know, in terms of their the, the social pressures that they have to deal with when you make a sacrifice like that. I think there's some like an interesting dynamic that I push back on a lot, which is that nonprofit organizations, um, they. Th too much of their relationship to their employees is assuming that it's out of the goodness of their heart or, or this is their passion or this is what you want to do. I have no problem with a nonprofit who says, look, we don't have the resources to pay big fat salaries, but we're going to treat you with professional dignity and we're going to give you the structure. You can build a family around this job. But I don't like the nonprofit world 
that asks you to say, hey, you got to come in at midnight on a Saturday night to do this. But just keep in mind, you know, don't forget about the children. I think that's what messes people up when they're asked or they even ask themselves as they're constantly, they're so mission focused. They get this Messiah complex where so much else of their identity and their self is sacrificed. There's going to be a financial sacrifice for nonprofits, but that doesn't mean that it's a it's a carte blanche excuse that trumps your family responsibilities and your personal self-care responsibilities. And if you're getting that messaging either from your organization or in your own internal head, something is broken, either the organizational culture or your own purpose and extricating yourself from the organization's mission and your own mission, which is where we started. Right, we, we've spoken about that a little bit. It, it's, I'm, I'm curious to hear from you if you think that there's a trend going the, the, the right direction in that way, because it, it sounds like, you know, sometimes we think of, you know, when we were kids or we hear stories of, of people that worked in non-for-profit and non-for-profit professionals of a, of a, an older generation, that was very much the mentality. I mean, I don't want to speak too much about camps, but that's very much the trend that we've seen in camps. Camps have really kind of changed the way they look at their at their people and and their employees and and at, you know, and the way they the way they bring value to the camps. Once upon a time, it was basically par for the course. Camps, especially because there's such an emotional investment in sort of the mission. You had all these employees and people that were working on for for nothing, and they were putting in crazy hours and crazy time and, and pouring in a crazy amount of investment. Um, so I see a change for the good in camps. I'm curious if you see that across sort of the non, non-for-profit space in general. I think absolutely. I think there are still places where they're struggling, but there has been an emphasis on prof- just professionalizing the structure. Um, you see retirement plans are much more common in nonprofits, which I love. Not here. And just, just that basic underlying dignity, I think, um, has become much more common. I still think people struggle. Like I'm a public speaker and I get a lot of emails from nonprofits where the email is basically like, hey, we'd love to have you speak at our event at our dinner and we're raising money for such and such and such and such. Like, could you come out, you know, on a weekend or on a or on a whatever, on a Wednesday or whenever it is? Um, and they won't they won't offer to pay me anything. And they put me in this uncomfortable position where they didn't say that they're not going to pay me. They didn't say that they are going to pay me. So I'm kind of left like, are you asking me for a favor? Is this a gig? Nonprofits need to project the same professionalism that to the outside world that they want to be seen as. And if you're running a nonprofit and you reach out to somebody, it's your responsibility if you're inviting somebody to come speak at an event or at a dinner you have to say, we're asking for this. I don't know if you have to use the word favor, but we're unable to pay you. It's not the job of the speaker to navigate that awkward Mexican standoff. Who's the first person who's going to bring up money and, and come off like the greedy you know, pig that you are that I have to respond, hey, just curious, am I getting paid for this or this is just kind of like for the children, quote unquote? And I have no problem with somebody asking me for a charitable donation of my time or expertise. I love that. I have no problem with it. But I, I wish they were a little bit more forthcoming in that process. Otherwise, I don't want the burden of awkwardness to fall on my shoulders. It should fall on the shoulders of the invitee, of the inviter, not the invitee. I mean, yeah, it Guilty sounds charged. You are? <laughs> One time. No, but the truth is like no. It, it's if I, it's let, not that I didn't want to. It just, I guess it just didn't like it didn't come up. But then eventually we ironed we ironed it out. It was fine. I, I, when I, I was happy, it was like we didn't have we had the budget for it. It wasn't like we. Um, when it comes to camps, obviously, so with seasonal employees, you're constantly hiring people. It's just like every year, it's just this cycle. And I try very hard to always mention, even if I don't know what the compensation exactly will be, I have this thing where I always want to be the one to mention the word compensation before before the other person, just because I know how uncomfortable that is to like in the back of your mind, you know, as soon as you start talking about a job, 
everyone's kind of wondering, you know, who's going to bring it up and, and what, what is the compensation? So I've been known, I, I'll say to them sometimes, listen, I have to get back to you about compensation, but just to almost clear the air so they understand, okay, you know, it's on my mind and I'm not afraid to talk about it. Because I do believe that in non what you're mentioning is definitely an issue um, for a lot of non-for-profits. Talking about money becomes like, you know, it's dirty. It's dirty to talk about compensation. It's dirty to talk yeah. about money. And I don't think we're doing anyone any favors by, by treating it that way. That, exactly the point. I think that separating out the mission, as beautiful as it is, as wonderful as it is, you have to give people the dignity of they have families, they have lives, they have what we have to be able to talk about money within a mission driven space. I think the fact that I grew up in a home of an oncologist who was doing very holy, decent work and really helping a ton of people and also doing things for free and pro bono and like just trying to, you know, cut some corners to help people get care that they wouldn't be able to pay for. But I also saw that like my father was a person and wanted to be treated a certain way uh, by the hospital, which he, which he had major issues with. And there's actually a book about that, about my father's battles with the, with the hospital. But that opened up my mind where like, you have to give people the basic dignity of, uh, of their work. There's no question about it. Okay. You've spoken about your father a lot. I have to ask what might be a personal question. And I'm curious if you learned there were lessons growing up in, in, in this house with your father, but like, did you see a struggle in your father of sort of separating his work life from his home life and not sort of carrying the stories and, and what he had to sort of shoulder uh, in his job and, and not letting that impact his, um, his relationships at home? Undoubtedly. I mean, I love my father. There's nobody I respect, you know, my father and mother, there's nobody I respect more. But when you are an oncologist, uh, especially somebody who was taking care of so many people within our community, uh, there was a trade-off. My father worked every single Sunday. My father wake, woke up at four o'clock in the morning and came back at 11. Um, there were other ways. And I think that I always say my my father um, he's he's really a a once in a generation personality and people who knew him knew him as such. Um, I think it it was hard for him to be again. He's from an earlier generation. He's seventy three, so even if he wasn't an oncologist, he was kind of the personality that was an amazing dad from the ages of zero to like two or three, and then takes like a long sabbatical. And then like picks it up as a killer dad, like in your like late 20s, like really the best. But like some dads aren't good at being a dad to teenagers. I think our generation is much better at that. Like being the friend dad, he was raised by a World War II veteran. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know that he was given the language and the skills, a lot of people from that generation to be like the buddy, buddy, little league coach dad. Like, it just wasn't, wasn't his vibe. And thank God he's built an incredible family culture. But that was definitely an issue. And I think that oncologists struggle in a very similar way to people in nonprofits, where the mission is so important that it can cloud out some of your other responsibilities and obligations. We believe that there is a, um, I don't know, maybe the East Coast is a little bit different, but there definitely is this like stigma about uh, joining and, and working professionally non-for-profit. And I think it scares off a lot of talent. And unfortunately, the talent pool is is small and it seems to be getting smaller as the years go on. So we sort of felt like if we can start a podcast to, you know, somewhat showcase the the fun that we have and the value that we see in uh, in the industry and uh, that maybe it would it would help, you know, break some of those break some of those stereotypes. Do you believe that there are stereotypes of people that work in non for profit that keep potential non-for-profit talent from considering a, a career in non-for-profit? Of course, of course. There are stereotypes in every industry. The stereotypes of a non-profit, you know, uh, well, I don't have to go through them. There are certainly stereotypes. And that's why, you know, from the outset, I think the theme of the whole thing of becoming a healthy person is not defining yourself based on an industry, is not defining yourself based on, a specific job title. You know, what I remind myself always is what are really rich people when you've made a ton of money, a ton of money, what do they like to do when they're done? They like to work for nonprofits and write books and share articles and do all the things I'm doing. And half the time they're only, again, it annoys me when they get a ton of attention just because they have money, 
but then it's never going to buy them the influence that they want because in the economy and the marketplace of ideas, that's why I love living in that space, the best ideas rise to the top. And you have to remind yourself, at least I remind myself all the time, what brought me here? I love sharing ideas. It's not because I, I wasn't brought here because I don't want to make money. I wasn't brought here because I want to be a nonprofit guy. I want to give back. I love, I, I am an educator at my heart. And I look at that as such a prestigious job. The word education is something that exists in every single industry in the for-profit, non-profit world. The skills I have, I never feel insecure about could I ever make it, dot, 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 dot. The only reason I couldn't make it in the, in the for-profit world is just the corporate culture I would find absolutely suffocating. I don't think of myself as less intelligent, less put together, less anything. And I think a lot of people's hesitations about those stereotypes, I'll be really blunt now, sometimes they're true and they're insecure and it reminds them of who they are. If you don't want to be seen that way, don't be that way. Don't, you know, don't lean into those expectations. If you, if you don't want to be seen as a person who walks in with a, you know, a frayed collar and unbuttoned button and a coffee stain on your shirt, then don't walk into the room with a coffee stain on your shirt and an unbuttoned button and a frayed collar. It's not, you don't need to be a billionaire to be able to do that. You need to, you need the basic self-care that goes into being a human being and regardless of industry. And I think that that's something, the people who are most insecure about this, I find uh, is self-generated, not communal generated. I was just going to say though, like, but the best thing is like when you have the billionaires that are like that, that like, because like they're so focused on making money that like they can like have a coffee stand on the shirt and like they just get away with it. I have so many stories. Sam Zell was actually trending so on Twitter stories a couple days that. ago because he does not have a paid Zoom subscription. So everyone was like freaking out, which is pretty funny. Anyway, I know we're short on time um, and I know you really want to talk about your book, so we should do that. No, 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 no. I, I People could check me out online. They can look at all my books. I just published a book of top fives, which is very, very inside Jewish humor. I don't know if all your listeners will appreciate it, but if they do want to check it out, it's called Top Five Lists of Jewish Characters and Character. And uh, you could check that out, but it's very inside Jewish humor. If that does not interest you, uh, I would definitely skip it. What's What's next for David Bashevkin? We're, 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 what are we keep, you, we what's keep, on the horizon? We keep going back and forth on his name. It's bothering me. I, I introduced him as David, and then I went back to Dove, and that was it. What is next for David Bashevkin? I am finishing, God willing, my PhD very soon. I am in the middle of a project where I write a thematic essay at the, at the end of every tractate in Talmud. I would like to finish that and publish that as my next book, as my fifth book. Um, and just being joyous and finding great ideas and, and lovely ideas to share with the world. All right, David, thank you hey, very much. Last, last question. Oh. How do we better promote this podcast? Like, we actually think it's decent. Like, is it the best, pos- po- is it the, is it the best podcast out there? I don't know, but it's it doesn't great. suck. You can add a drop more structure, and you need to land a huge guest with a big Twitter but follow. We've, ha- we've had big guests. Yeah, but you got you to gotta do more. Who are, the kill- who are the kings of the nonprofit? Or who runs, I don't know, the Jimmy Fund or... Or American Cancer Association. Right, that's what we need to be doing. But I don't don't think that draws listeners. Like, if I I wouldn't necessarily, if if I came across a podcast in which some. It does, they'll retweet you and it will draw listeners. Like, we had had Michael Dixon. Michael Dixon's had a huge following. Build the core community and build outwards. That's what I do with everything. Build that core community and then build outwards. I gotta run. I love you both. David, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thanks for coming. We appreciate it. Oh, yeah. All right, David, take care. Take care. Be well. Bye. Bye. He loves your voice. That's really nice. That's, is that the main takeaway? I really think it is. That's fine. We can talk about that. How does that make you feel? It makes me feel really good. It makes me feel like that we're doing the right thing here. Um, but ultimately, I still haven't gotten my soundboard from your sister. So That's not called the soundboard. It's not Whatever called Whatever she calls it. I don't Whatever. know. I'm sorry. Anyways. Anyway. Yeah, let's talk about it. Um, no, David's a great guy. I David's love. The, always, I, I, he's always fun. No, but I love the discussion. I think that it's. I think it's important. I think that the personalities. I think the piece of it about burnout. And I think one thing we did not touch upon is being surrounded by the right people. I think for a lot of people, burnout is if you're not, if you don't have the right support, if you don't have people in it with you, if you don't, if you don't have people in the trenches, sweating with you, um, you're going to burn out. Mm-hmm. And it's probably like that in any uh, industry. And I'm sure if you talk to anybody, you know, in, in startups, um, it's 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 being in it with the right people to help you get by. Yeah.
I was thinking about the burnout question a lot. I mean, we didn't really talk about this in this way, but I, I was, I've been thinking about the burnout question a lot because someone else asked me about it recently. And I, I happen to believe that like one of the things that really influences burnout in specifically a non-for-profit, which we sort of touched on, which is that like the idea that yes, a lot of people get started because of the mission. Um, but I believe the mission really only takes you so far. You know, there's that like honeymoon period where you start in the job and you're, you're doing your dream job and you're working towards a dream cause. And then at some point, you know, real life sets in. And, you know, the question then becomes what are your, what are the dividends? Like, what are you, what are you getting out of the job? What are you getting out of the experience? And I think that's really where things like, you know, the team, the support, um, healthy compensation, you know, the, all of the culture, all of those things are the things that I think really help people kind of develop that lasting power in the industry. Because I, I, I do believe this, the mission only takes you so far. And at some point, you know, the stories that were so inspiring um, at the beginning, they become not as inspiring. Uh, now, I, I think I, I'll even them. take it a step further. I think it's like, it becomes like, become like spiteful towards it. Like you just don't care. It's very, you know, yeah. I mean, listen, camp, I'll, I'll talk personally. Camp is fantastic. I love working with kids in the way that we do. Highs and lows. Um, but like the things that like used to really get me excited in the beginning, um, I've gotten used to it. I really have gotten used to it. And I've, and, and, and I'm, I'm very happy in my job, but not for those reasons necessarily anymore, because those reasons don't exactly do it for me anymore. Now, once in a while, there will come a story and we'll have a family that we're dealing with. Like there will, there obviously are going to be these experiences that come up um, that are inspiring, but it's not, it's, it's definitely not what's keeping me. You know what I mean? It's, it's a lot of the other things and it's sort of like the, just the global responsibility um, and having that impact, but you have to see it differently. You know, you have to realize that there comes a point in working in non-for-profit where the mission, you know, your relationship to the mission and to your own motivation that got you to start this job is going to be different and it's going to change and that's okay. And it can develop. Um, and I think that's a huge piece because I think people find themselves two, three, four years into a job and it's just not as exciting as it was. So they're not as driven by the mission. And then they're basically looking to get out. Yeah. And I think that's a huge problem. And it's on the organizations and the leaders of those organizations to make sure that there are conversations being had about that experience. Yeah. Yeah. Can I just say that a lot of people have commented on our voices and normally they say that your voice is better. I know. That's why I don't. I'm not. I'm okay. I'm not. If you think like I'm insulted, I'm not, I told you why. No, he said I'm just it. like I know bewildered. Exactly, I know exactly why he said it. Why did he say it? He's very upset about the jammed finger. <laughs> He's very upset. He's been upset about it for years. I'm surprised he didn't bring it up. And he pretends like it was so long ago. We've talked about right, it. Right. He pretended like he didn't remember. Yeah. Oh, man. That oh, was yeah. So long you remember ago. that? Yeah. He remembers it. Jammed his finger. It was like a routine. He was going up for a routine layup. I stuffed the garbage out of him. And next thing I know, he's like on the floor whining. Oh, my finger, my finger. All right, let's move on. I hope he listens to that. Let's move on. It's probably not how it happened. So just a quick uh, where we were right. So I get a lot of flack for putting us on com from people who think it's like a ridiculous. And honestly, <laughs> you have to explain what it is. People so, like, okay. So for those who don't know, so com is like a Jewish cameo yes. website, um, which they you, you pay celebrities. I would call it cameo. I knew you were going to use the word celebrities, which I, we're Celeb- not. No, but that, what, how else would you describe yeah, it? Yeah, you're right. It's celebrities. We're so it's, a- a- it's actually funny because before we got on, people were like, how come you're not on? And then I get on, everyone's like, ah, oh, I can't believe you're on. Anyway, so <laughs> I actually made the conscious decision to put us up there. Our profile actually looks ridiculous, but I did it for one reason. And that was so when people are looking for actual celebrities, they come across us by accident and they listen to our podcast. And uh, that actually worked. So you know, we've got, I was right. I was going to say, actually, that since our last episode, I've noticed we've gotten some, uh, we've gained some interesting, some unique listeners out there. Yeah. So I, I got like some random DMs from some guy. He's like, uh, and shout out to him, by the way, because he, he, apparently he's been promoting us in his social circle. Yeah. I saw that. He, I mean, I hope he's at least, maybe he lied. I don't know. Anyway. Maybe we know him and he's like playing a game with us. I really don't think so. Um, but either way, uh, he basically just told me that I came across your podcast from Stay Miles Tough. And there it goes. So that was it. I was right. Yeah. So it worked. So the whole thing was worth it. I mean, we did get one purchase, by the way. We had one order. 
one. Oh yes, we did have an order. Yes, oh, yeah, we did. We had yeah. one order. Yeah, and uh, I guess a quick where we were wrong. I I read Michael Knopf's phone number in the last episode wrong. I'm sorry about that. I would say you have to apologize, but he's not listening. He's not listening now. You, com- you think he's ever listened? I know, but we're coming up to our annual. You this think we is- could switch the sponsor and he would even notice? Um, I mean, we have to make sure we fulfilled our our commitment to him as a sponsor. I think we we have. How many? Sp- I've got, I get requests. Have you gotten sponsorship requests? I have. So to be clear, for anyone listening, we've been in a. It was an exclusive sponsorship, um, and it was for it was for it was supposed to be for twelve months. Originally, we thought we were going to do an episode every other week, um, which would have only been twenty four episodes. That's yeah, that's that's good math ish. Yeah. Um. No, it's more. It's probably been twenty. Well, first of all, that was not the initial commitment. It was it, it was fifty two weeks in a year. So it, it was bi monthly. That was the initial commitment. Oh, it was bi monthly, right? We've surpassed that. We've and and we're coming up on twelve months, right? How what what month did the first did the, did we launch? We launched them in April, I believe. Oh, so not so. I mean, I think we're close enough that we could say, "Yo, we're done. Kill it." You yeah, may want to renew. And uh, by the way, he probably had a to, sick year last year. I know. I have to speak to him. Um, I don't know if it's because but of us. I don't know that we would. I, I, I don't think we would. I know this is this isn't this doesn't have to be a conversation for the air, but we don't have to go exclusive with him again. No, we don't. No, we get enough asks that I think maybe ready. We're ready. We could we could pepper in to the episode a couple ad reads. Yeah, just work them in nicely, you know. But first, like Mila. let me tell you about my friends at nine ninety talk. Like our good friend. What what does that mean? Like that's how they do the ad reads. Oh yeah. Oh, you you were like nine. As if I don't, nine ninety talk was a sponsor. But I didn't want to plug somebody else. Yeah, no, so I like just plugged us. I was about to talk about Meal Mark Kishka. Why? <laughs> because the Crackpot Show. Oh, our favorite. Yeah, he did us a favor, so we can. He did actually. Yeah, we can. He huge favor. So your yeah. shout out. Yeah. Um. All right, that's a good what one. What a wacky dude. That's great. <laughs> anyway. Okay. Well, listen. You know, like I said, we're back to recording again, and we will. Uh, we'll see you next week. Homies looking out for me. They the ones who family. I've been on that melody. Obvious design. I'm gonna do me and you can do you, but I'm gonna do